Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, good morning again. The road is open, by the way, 95 from here to Boise. Come see us sometime. <laughs> I, uh, I used to love that drive. <laughs> and I'll love it again someday, I'm sure. But it's sure good to be here with you folks. I want to mention, especially to those who may be watching at home, that this uh, service this morning, we're going to close by sharing uh, the Lord's Supper together, Holy Communion together. And we didn't get that word out ahead of time, so if you're at home and you're, and you're watching this service, um, you say, we don't have the right kind of juice and the right kind of bread. You know what? Uh, it's okay. You, you get what you've got if you'd like to participate with us at the end of this service uh, in communion, and uh, it'll be all right. Uh, we won't know, and God will understand, okay? So whatever, whatever you have at home uh, that can serve as elements uh, for the communion at the close of the service, um, That'd be great. And, and you have the wonderful luxury of being able to get up and walk to the kitchen and get that stuff, and none of us will know that you've done that. So I've been thinking about uh, a, a word or two, a phrase or two from last Sunday's message. I've been thinking about um, Jesus' words to Peter after Peter rebuked Jesus. A lot of nerve, right? And, and uh, Jesus talked about going to the cross, and Peter said, that can never happen to you. And you remember Jesus rebuked Peter, and he rebuked him with these words. He said, your mind is set on earthly things, not on divine things. And we talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit about what it meant to have a mind set on the Spirit and a mind set on divine things. And, and we looked into Romans chapter 12 uh, for just a few minutes, but as I thought about this week and, and the next couple of weeks, I thought I really, we really want to go back. I really want to go back. Uh, so I know you do too. <laughs> uh, and, and think about what it is to think with divine things in mind. To think about what it is to be transformed from thinking about things uh, in, a, in an earthly, fleshly sense, um, the way the world thinks, uh, and to begin to think in terms of the way the mind of Christ thinks. And so um, we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday in uh, the last part of Romans chapter 11 and the first part of Romans chapter 12, the last part of Romans chapter 11 today. Um, the book of Romans, you, you may know this already, but this is kind of intro to Bible for, for uh, our, just a reminder. The, the first um, eight or nine chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans are just a primer in Christian theology. Um, just to cook it down and paint with a very, very broad brush, um, Paul talks initially about why the world is such a mess, our failure to acknowledge God, and the sin problem in Romans chapter 3. And then from 5 through about 8, um, Paul opens the, the, the book on the grace of God and the saving work of God 
in Christ and what God has done for us in Christ. And then chapters 9 through 11, uh, Paul kind of turns his attention to his people, the children of Israel. The book, of course, Romans, is written to a Gentile audience. And Paul turns his focus back to his own people and talks about the faithfulness of God and the covenant and how God has not forgotten Israel, even though Israel has, by and large, rejected Christ, that God is faithful to his promise to Israel. And Paul wraps up the 11th chapter of Romans with this beautiful, beautiful hymn. Um, let's, just, let's just read this out loud together, shall we? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a, what a beautiful, mind-blowing hymn of, oh, I almost, I can't hardly use the word description of how indescribable God really is, how, how beyond our imagination. Uh, the Christian minister, A.W. Tozer, says this, and I think it's a very important thing for us to think about. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me let that sit for a second. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. More than anything else that shapes us, we are shaped by our understanding and our concept of what is ultimate what is divine, what is absolute, what is God for us, whatever that may be. What enters our mind when we think about God? I have, I have uh, two collections of books at home. I have uh, all of the books of uh, the, the uh, Trappist monk, uh, Father Thomas Merton. I, me and eBay put the whole library together. Um, and I have all of the Far Side comic books. Um, what comes into your mind when you think of God? Uh, <laughs> by the way, I should give you, the, the next few moments may be irreverent, okay? Uh, okay. Acts of God. We probably think more of hurricanes, but there you go. Let's see what. Oh, this is yeah. Uh, I'll give you a minute. It, playing Jeopardy with God would just be not fair at all. God, God gets that. What about the next one? <laughs> Uh, can you, can you, his finger is over a key marked smite. Can you read that? This is God at his computer with the smite key. When I, when I shared these once at a, at a uh, college faculty retreat, 
I had two or three members of the faculty come up to me afterwards and ask where they could get that computer. <laughs> Shame on them. Um, and I have, oh, here we go. <laughs> this one may take a minute. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a second. The, the words at the top are, just to make things interesting, as God creates the world, he shakes a few jerks out here and there. And, and by the way, it worked, didn't it? There, have you noticed that no matter where you are, there are some? This is how it happened, right here. This, this last one, I think, is my, my personal favorite. Um, yeah, I told you there was going to be some irreverence in these. God, God, as a kid, tries to make a chicken in his room. Um, there's a school of, of Christian thought called process theology, and I sent this to a friend of mine who's in that school that, you know, and anyway, if you, oh well, that's a, that's a deep story. What, what comes into your mind when you think about God? The reason these are funny, if you found them funny, uh, is that we all have these ideas about who God is and about what God is like what God likes and doesn't like, what, what God thinks and doesn't think. And when Paul comes to this transition in the letter to the Romans, where he's moving from theology into the rest of the book, which, by the way, I, I, my notes say I should have already told you that from 12, chapter 12 on is what I call the so what section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, we are sinners God saves us by his grace. God is faithful to the covenant. That's chapters 1 through 11. So what? That's chapter 12 to the end of the book. How should we then live since God is what God is? And in the transition between those two very important parts of his book, Paul says this about God the depth of the riches and this is a different version by the way oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments his paths beyond tracing out if you're wondering as I did about what the word inscrutable means <laughs> his paths are beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This morning I have a really simple objective. It, it, it is that your minds will be a little bit, no, a lot blown by the greatness of God that you and I will come to understand that the way we think about God is not God. <laughs> that God is beyond our imagination. Not that we need more imagination. It, it would be beyond, God would be beyond that imagination as well. I have a, a couple of really close friends. I have more than that. But I have a couple of really close friends who, who are atheists. Um, they don't believe what I believe. But I've been thinking about the valuable contribution that atheists have made to a right understanding of God. 
my atheist friends, perhaps yours as well, have steadfastly refused to believe in the existence of gods. And in most cases, they've been right. Most of the gods, little g, most of the gods atheists don't believe in really don't exist. The God who loves us more than them. There's no such God. That God doesn't exist. The nationalistic God who's always on our side, that God doesn't exist. I'll never forget an interview that I watched the night before the first Gulf War, way back in the last century. A, a very famous reporter, whose name I wish I could remember, was interviewing Saddam Hussein. Remember him? And uh, he, he asked, the, the American forces were, were lined up on the border, uh, the Kuwaiti border, getting ready to move north. And, and, and he asked Saddam if, if he really thought the, is, the Iraqi army could defeat the American army. And, and, and Saddam said, yes. And the reporter said, why? And Saddam said, because God is on our side. And the reporter asked a profound question. Has any army ever marched that didn't believe God was on their side? Nobody ever got the army together the night before the war and said, I'm pretty sure God's against us, but we're going for it anyway. <laughs> Never happened. But you see, the God that Saddam thought was up there and the God that we think is up there is not up there. There is no God that loves our nation more than another. Hmm. That's a tough one for us to let go of. Um, I love the country I live in. I am so blessed. We are so blessed to be in this country. This is a phenomenal place to live. I am really troubled by a phrase that I hear a lot. I'm really troubled by the phrase God and country. I will celebrate country. I love the 4th of July. By the way, if you're ever in Peabody, Kansas on the 4th of July, stay there for the fireworks. I've been to Washington, D.C. I'd rather be in Peabody. There's something about a small Midwestern town on the 4th of July that just goes nuts out of love for our wonderful country. I'll go to a country celebration. I'll go to a God celebration. By the way, I'm at one right now, aren't I? <laughs> but the word and it is a grammatic equal sign. That's what, it, that's what it functions as. It's a grammatic equal sign. Peanut butter and jelly, right? Sears and Roebuck. Grandparents, you'll have to explain that one later. When we put the word and next to God and add anything else, we've crossed a line. We've created a God that doesn't really exist. We've created a God that is all about us and not about them. 
students used to hate it when I say, here's another God that doesn't exist, a God that helps you get a good grade on a test for which you didn't study. And I would, when I would share that in chapel, I hear amens from the wings. The faculty sat on the wings. I, there'd be dead silence where the students were. And, and, and then I would say, and here's another God that doesn't exist, the God that helps you deliver a really good lecture that you haven't prepared for. <laughs> and then I would hear an amen from the middle. <laughs> and silence on the wings. We have such a tendency to create God in our own image. And, and we just won't get to God <laughs> as long as we're willing to stop at God, little g, ours, the one that we've managed in some way to create there is no possibility whatsoever of knowing and worshiping the true God until we recognize that the little gods of our imaginations, the gods of our little formulas, simply don't exist. I, I, uh, um, if you hear this as bragging, okay, it probably is. I have something over 1,900 Facebook friends. That, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I, I think I probably know about 130 of them. Uh, for for all the all the years of Facebook, when students would would ask me to friend them, I would do that. I would never seek out a student, but but and so I, at one point the average age of my Facebook friends was about 23, which is really weird for an old man. Um, they're growing now; they're getting older now. If you do Facebook at all, you know that one of the little buttons on the profile of Facebook is the About button, and you can push that little button. And you learn about those people. Now, again, 1,900, and, and I, I don't know how many of them I'd recognize on the street, not most. But there's an about button, and I can push that little button, and I can find out where they're from and where they went to school and, and maybe what they're doing now. And, 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 and I can learn about them, but I cannot come to know them. I cannot come to know them. And I fear that sometimes in the church, in Christian education, in theological education, sometimes we have reduced faith to knowing about God. And, and faith isn't knowing about God. Faith is knowing God, not as a historical figure that we study in order to understand better. Jesus met the woman at the well, and they had this conversation about denominations and your, your, your church worships here and my church worships there and, and Jesus said but the time is coming when neither here nor there will we worship God because God is spirit and those who worship God worship God in spirit and in truth he was saying to that Samaritan woman not just God is bigger than, than you people think but then he turned to the temple and said, God is bigger than our people think. God is spirit, and those who worship God worship in spirit and truth. God is unfathomable, unimaginable, beyond anything we could ever put into words. Let me share a quote with you. The living God, the God who is God and not a philosopher's abstraction, lies infinitely beyond the reach of anything our eyes 
can see, our minds can understand, no matter what perfection you predicate of God, you have to add that your concept is only a pale analogy of the perfection that is in God and that God is not literally what you conceive by those terms. You hear Paul's words, oh, the unsearchable riches of God, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God's wisdom is beyond human calculation. The wisdom and the knowledge of God cannot be plumbed. God knows, period. God knows. There's an interesting theological debate these days about whether God knows the future or not. Uh, this is philosophy, not theology. And I'm not preaching it. I'm just telling you. Um, the, the, the argument goes that, that if we are really free, truly free, which we Wesleyan folk believe we are, if, we, if God has really made us free to choose, then the future doesn't exist yet. And, and, and people get really nervous about the idea that, that you say, well, then God doesn't know the future. And, and we get pretty nervous about that. But, but here's the interesting thing, if you want to go down that track. We're not saying God doesn't know the future. What we're saying is God knows every single possible future. Let that soak in for a minute, you philosophers. <laughs> to, to suggest that God doesn't know what you'll have for lunch today and how long you'll nap and and what you'll do tomorrow, those things, because you're free to make those choices, should not bother you. Because, you see, what God knows is, is everything on the menu <laughs> and all the possibilities. The wisdom and the knowledge of God are beyond our figuring out. God is bigger, always bigger. There's a chorus that we used to sing. <laughs> yeah, there are, aren't there? There are a lot of choruses that we used to sing. Remember this one? God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. I'm not going to sing, thankfully. Well, that rhymes, doesn't it? Uh, I didn't plan that. He works in ways we cannot see. He has made a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side with love and strength for each new day. He will make a way. God will make a way. Remember that chorus? Anybody out there? Good. Three. Wonderful. Glad I read it. And I know what I usually meant when I sang that chorus. I, I usually meant that God will make a way for me this week. God will make a way for me through this pandemic. God will make a way for me to deal with financial difficulties. God will make a way for me in this relationship. When I shared this message with college students, I said, God will make a way for me not to lose that girl. And then I said, or maybe God will make a way that you can lose that girl. <laughs> and several people sighed, you know, at that point. But we have tended to think about God making a way as having to do with getting me through my current time of need. But the gospel message, 
is not that God will make a way. Hang with me. I'm not saying God doesn't care about that stuff. I'm saying that the gospel message is not that God will make a way. It is that God has made a way where there seemed to be no way. God worked in ways that no one could see. He has made a way for me and for you and for all humanity and all creation. God cares about your needs and my needs. But God cares about it all. Do we get that? If we have made for ourselves a God whose primary job is to keep us comfortable, we have created a God that doesn't exist. Because the heart of God beats for all of creation. Listen to the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son. This is just prior to the cross. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now this is eternal life. (laughs) Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How unsearchable are God's judgments. How unfathomable are God's ways. There's an old movie. The title of the movie is Rudy. Some of you may remember it. A young man goes off to a a Catholic school. And, And in the movie, he's trying to work out his own kind of spiritual understanding and spiritual direction. And in a conversation with one of the priests, he asks if there's anything else he can do to secure God's favor. He's trying to figure God out. Good luck. And and listen to the response of the priest. Son, in all my years of theological studies, I have come to the harsh conclusion that there are only two truths that I know for sure. There is a God, and I'm not him. And neither am I. And neither are you. God doesn't judge like you judge. God doesn't judge like I judge. God doesn't think like you think or think like I think. I was created in his image. We need to be careful not to return the favor and recreate God in our own. You see, the purpose of understanding theology is not to bring us to a place where we comprehend God, but to bring us to a place where we finally realize that God is incomprehensible. God is greater. A scholar at Princeton by the name of Karen Armstrong wrote a fascinating book called The History of God. And it's a study of of the evolution of the idea of God in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Fascinating book. It's an academic thing, but it's a fascinating book. One line out of that book struck me and stuck with me. She's talking about the Christian church, and and she's 
talking more specifically about the difference between the Western Christian Church and the Eastern Christian Church. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about the Idaho Church and the Washington Church. That's not, you know, I'm talking about the, the Church of Western Europe and the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Eastern Church. And she makes this statement about Christianity in the West. That's, that's our brand of Christianity in the West. She says this, Only in the West could we have come to believe that God and our idea of God are the same. I'll soak that for a minute, maybe say it once more. Only in the West could we have come to believe that God and our idea of God are the same. Do we get that if we figured God out, that wouldn't be God? Do we get that? Do we understand that the way we talk about God, by the way, is the way we have to talk about God. By the way, it's not inappropriate or irreverent to talk about God. I, I'm not entirely sure that God doesn't also enjoy the far side. Uh, but as we say the things we think about God, as we say the things we think we know about God, it's very, very important that we understand the limitations of our language and that when I sing Jesus loves me I'm singing a true thing and if I think it ends there I've created a false God get that when I sing Jesus loves me I'm singing a true thing but if I think it ends there I've created a false God who, who doesn't just love me God does things God's own way. Uh, the incarnation is the incredible proof of that. I, I got to tell you that from my perspective, God coming into a violent world as a helpless baby was a really dumb idea. I would not have done that. Neither would you. You and I would have sent an army to fix that, right? Because my ways aren't God's ways. And God decides he's going to wrap his arms around the world in the form of an infant that can't hurt anybody, <laughs> that comes as a threat to no one. When we look at the manger and think about the baby, and realize that that's God. If nothing else, we have to step back and say, oh man, I've been wrong <laughs> about who God is. Because that's not what, no, uh -uh, that's not the way I'd have done things. I'd have, I'd have fixed the world by telling the world how wrong it was. I'd have fixed the world by knocking out the bad people. I'd have, I'd have fixed the world by giving power to the good people. I, you know, there are so many better ways to fix the world than with a baby. Folks, we get that, but do we understand that the way God is at work in the world today is just as different from the way we think as that was?
And you see, a message like this doesn't end with a formula. It doesn't end with, okay, now I'm going to tell you how I've got all, because the whole thing I've been trying to say through this whole message is when you get it figured out, you haven't got it figured out. So we will talk about God in ways that we understand. But we must remember that on our best day, we haven't got God figured out. It's interesting to me how some people will talk about being closer to God than other people. We're, we're closer to God than those people. You know, those people, they don't, even, they don't even think about God the way we think about God. We're a lot closer to God than they are. I read a, a, a fascinating illustration uh, to suggest that I am closer to God than you are. Uh oh, that's too close to the edge. I might fall down. To suggest that I am closer to God than you are is like standing on a piece of paper and claiming to be closer to the sun. Now, you see, the good news is that God is closer to you than you are to yourself. There's no distance between you and God. But to make an object, an item out of God that I can get closer to than somebody else is like standing on a piece of paper and claiming to be closer to the sun. Which, by the way, I have a friend who's a physics professor who tells me that I actually am closer to the sun standing on the paper. There will be sheets of paper out anyway. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been the Lord's counselor? I love the word confession because the word confession has a very simple meaning. The word confession simply means to say the same thing. It means to repeat back to the Father what the Spirit says to me. It, it means that when the Spirit says to me, Gene, you shouldn't have done that. I say back to the Spirit, Father, I shouldn't have done that. That when the Spirit speaks to my heart, I confess back what the Spirit has said to me. To be close to the Father is to recognize that the Father is so much different than I am, but loves me anyway. And I don't get to tell somebody exactly what God is like. And God's ways are not my ways. My ways would be the ways of judgment. My ways tend to be the ways of criticism and conviction. Brennan Manning writes in the Ragamuffin Gospel, Martin Luther wrestled through the night with the core question, how could the gospel of Christ be called good news if God is a righteous judge rewarding the good and punishing the evil? Did Jesus really have to come to reveal this terrifying message? How could the revelation of God in Jesus Christ be accurately called news since the Old Testament carried the same theme or good with the threat of punishment hanging like a cloud over the valley of history? And then he writes, God has a single relentless stance toward us. God loves us. He is the only God man ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners, take sides in the world. But the Father of Jesus loves all, no matter who or where we are. Who has given to him 
that he should be paid back. I, Isaiah said it in the 64th chapter, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shriveled up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you've hidden your face from us. Paul picked that up and said, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet the glory of God reaches down to us. For through him, through God, through him, for him, through him, and in him are all things. Eugene Peterson has rendered this in the message. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. God is the origin of our life. God said, let it be, and it was. That, by the way, is the most powerful statement in all of the creation narrative. God speaks, and it is. God is the source of life. God is the ongoing source of life. Every morning, God says, let there be Gene. <laughs> and I get up. And I get up because God brings life to all of us. There's a, there's a phrase that bugs me. Now, I, you go ahead and use it. It's fine. I'm, if I'm not around, you're, you're, you're okay. But, but it's, it's the phrase, I, I, that must have been a God thing. You know, we, we, the, my, my least favorite example of that is when somebody talked about running into an old friend in an airport that they hadn't seen in years. And, and they said, that just had to be a God thing. And my cynical mind was thinking, or it just could have been scheduling. But, but here's why that phrase bugs me a little bit. That phrase bugs me a little bit because it seems to imply that God engages with us every now and then. That every now and then, God says, I think I'll, I'm going to do a little thing right there so they'll remember, you know. And so, what we forget and what Paul is saying is that life is a God thing. Life is a God thing. And there will be happy moments along the way. And I don't know whether they're ordained or coincidental. I don't really care. But I do know that when that moment happened in your life that you thought was a God thing, God didn't just show up then. Life is a God thing. In him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And here's where we get in trouble. If you go back to the first chapter of Romans, the way the world fell apart, Paul writes this wonderful little uh, history of humanity in about three sentences. Uh, the way humanity fell apart, Paul says, is that from the beginning, God made God's nature and attributes and power fully exposed, perfectly clear through everything that God had made. But humanity chose not to honor God as God or give thanks. We chose not to glorify God. 
we chose not to thank God for the very breath we breathe, for the life we live, for the love that we exchange and experience. We've, we've put God in these little boxes that we get out for special occasions, one for church and one for crisis and, and one for happy moments and one for tragedy, and, and, and we invite God into those moments. when God is always there giving us life. So, Pastor Gene, are we without hope? Can we not in any way understand who or what God is? Oh, I'm so glad. You ask all the right questions. Every time you ask a question like that, it's right here in my notes. It's in the opening lines of, of the letter to the Hebrews. In the past, God, got it? This, is, this, this means bigness. <laughs> in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son Jesus whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe listen to this the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by the power of his word you want to know who God is? You want to know what God cares about? You want to know how God interacts with people? Look at Jesus. Jesus cares about the stuff God cares about. Jesus doesn't see color. Jesus doesn't see borders. Jesus doesn't root for armies any more than Jesus roots for football teams. Though I have a friend who thinks Jesus roots for football teams. And, and Jesus comes to us through the cross and invites us to walk with him into a world where stuff doesn't work the way the world thinks stuff works into a world where stuff works through grace and love and sacrifice instead of power and authority and wealth and all that other stuff. And as we come to the close of this message, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. Now, you're there already. We're not going to gather because of this stupid COVID thing. But um, when you came in, you, you should have picked up one of these little cups with a little piece of bread on the top. If, by the way, you didn't, put your hand up. We have people that will bring them to you uh, right now. And if you're at home, this is the time to gather whatever you gathered to the table. I was thinking about how to wrap this up and how to take us into communion. And, 
most of you know that one of the words the church has used down through the centuries for communion is the word Eucharist. And the word Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. And when Paul starts chapter 12 of Romans, he says, therefore, in the light of God's mercy, and he invites us into a life of thanksgiving, a life of thanksgiving for forgiveness, a life of thanksgiving for wholeness. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he says, pray like this. Would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My mind is blown by the greatness of God. By the fact that God will not be put into the little box that I occasionally want to build for God. That God will always be bigger. God will always be more. And, and what we celebrate in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, is that God will always be different than my little judgmental spirit. And so the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. Didn't we figure out how to get these out yet? Excuse me. This is really dumb. By the way, words I've never spoken in a communion service before. I got it. Yeah, thank you. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body that's broken for you. And through his brokenness, we receive our wholeness. Father, may this bread be to us the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we share it together, may we participate in your brokenness and may we experience your wholeness. In Jesus' name, you may take the bread. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said to his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Sometimes we wonder who it is that's qualified to come and drink this cup. Jesus makes that pretty clear. In order to qualify to come and drink this cup, you have to need forgiveness. <laughs>
Well, here we are, needing forgiveness. Father, would this cup be to us the shed blood of your Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would in these moments we simply confess whatever it is your Spirit wants to say to us about the dark and broken places in our own lives. And we confess that we need you and that we need your forgiveness. And as we receive this cup this morning, as we sit together with your universal church around your table and receive this cup, we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take the cup together. You, we, serve and worship an incredible God who's beyond all that we could imagine. Go ahead, imagine, but know that the God who goes with you this morning is bigger than that, even bigger than that. God bless you as you go. You're dismissed.